It's a privilege to be here today. I, I really look forward to coming on campus. And this morning I took my Diet Coke and sat out under the oaks and thought of uh, days about five years ago when I used to sit on this very campus and talk with international students primarily. And as I was sitting there, I remember thinking, leadership, what is this thing about leadership all about anyhow? I started thinking of Zhao in Kenya, medical doctor at the University of Nairobi who was here studying the Bible so that he could go back to his country. I don't think he ever intended to be, to be a leader, quite honestly, but he is a leader today. And I started thinking about Cornell Toons, who yesterday afternoon, sometime, jumped on an airplane and was on his way to Bucharest, Romania, his home country, to uh, be a part of translating uh, for a shepherd's conference in Romania for pastors and Christian workers. And my mind just ran wild. All the people that I have known who have been on this campus who are now in positions of leadership, and there are so many of them. And I thought, now what do I say to these people today? What do I tell them? I think probably the thing that may be the most shocking to you, but maybe the most helpful to you, is that in five years you will be leaders out there. And you tell yourself, no, not me. I will not be a leader. I'm a follower. I'm not a leader. You will be a leader. You will impact people. Now, those guys who were here five years ago, you should have seen them. I mean, they were tripping all over the place and falling down. And when they'd eat, they'd get food all over their faces. And I mean, they did everything wrong. Um, but that doesn't matter. What does matter in leadership? I want to do a little sim symbolic gesture here. Um, I'm going to loosen my tie a little bit and get comfortable. Maybe roll up my sleeves a little bit. And you say, well, haven't you ever read Dress for Success? Yeah, I read it. Dress for Success, here's how you get what you want in this world. Here's how you lead and control people. That isn't where it's at, is it? Now, I'm not putting down dressing appropriately. We ought to try to be neat. That's important. Uh, but clothes don't make the man. And clothes don't make the woman either. They don't make the Christian leader. What does make or break the Christian leader? I know you've been talking about some of these things in, uh, in a, a few chapels that have gone by already, but really, what does make a leader in the Christian sense? Now, if you look around you today, you'll see all kinds of models of leadership. Everyone has their own concept of what leadership is and how you get there, how you get from A to B in becoming a leader. Most of that doesn't square with what God's Word says. And we're going to see this in the life of Joseph today. Let's look at Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis 37, we find Joseph, a young man, a shepherd. He's getting ready to, uh, to assume his role as a mature adult in the world of Jewish life. Joseph never, I'm sure, could have seen himself as a leader. But you know what's going to happen because you know the end of the story. I just want to ask the question, where are leaders really made? You know, there are institutions that claim to make leaders. We make people into leaders. Uh, there are books about leadership. When I arrived at college uh, a long time ago, I remember after a full meal, I was walking home from the cafeteria thinking, what am I doing here? You know, and 
I thought, I, I guess I'm supposed to become a leader. I've got to go find a book. And so I went down to the bookstore. And you don't tell people these things. You know, this is, you've got to be cool about this. So I, I walked in the bookstore and I didn't ask anyone where the books were on leadership. I just thought I'd kind of snoop them out myself. And sure enough, I went over the bookshelf and I picked up this book and, and there it is. So you want to be a leader. I thought, that's me. I want to be a leader. What does this book have to say? I took this book back to my room and I started reading and the first chapter was about getting organized and planning your life. And I thought, I want to be a leader. I don't want to be organized. The fourth and the fifth chapter, how does a leader think? How do people understand you? How do you get along with people? Leading group activities? Well, that didn't sound like leadership to me. That sounded like common sense. I said to myself, how do you get to be a leader, a Christian leader in this world of leaders, many models of leaders? didn't take long before I realized that the answer is in God's Word. And that's where we're looking today. Doug Bookman, this, we're going to follow in the Bookmanian tradition today. Doug Bookman told you the guy who wants the job least gets it. That's the servant leader. He's not clamoring for it. He's not clawing for it. He's not pushing people out of the way. He's the guy who's working hard and he's being faithful. I just want to add to that. I want to build on what Doug said. In Joseph's life, least likely individuals become leaders too. You know, if you look at your peers around you now and you say, who will be the leaders in this group? Got a shocking word for you. You can never guess. People who seem like the most likelies in the end turn out to be relatively relaxed people who don't care anything about being up front and leading in this and that. And the people who seem like many times are the least likely, oftentimes they are the ones who will be the leaders in churches and in uh, Christian agencies around the world today. Leaders, true spiritual leaders are made in heaven. Books don't make them. Programs don't make them. They are made in heaven. But they are made in heaven for a time. They lead often with great difficulties in their leadership. And then God replaces them. You know, their time comes and their time goes. The important thing is that they're faithful when their time comes. Well, Joseph didn't seem like a likely leader. I think if anyone looked at him, they would have said, Huh, Joseph, you've got to be kidding me. He's the youngest. He's a shepherd. He doesn't really show signs of leadership at all. Uh, he lives in a, an obscure place way out in the middle of nowhere and even seems to lack a little discernment in getting along in, with people at times. Joseph? Nah, not Joseph. Reuben, maybe. He's the firstborn. Judah, he's impetuous. I mean, he, he's type A. He clamors for everything that comes in his path. But Joseph, nah. He's the last guy on the list. Interesting. Well, when we start out in Genesis 37, we find Joseph in just that kind of a situation. That is his life. That is who he is. He's the son of one of Joseph's, I'm sorry, Jacob's favorite wives, 
That's not a problem for us today, obviously. But Joseph doesn't seem like the one who is going to make it as a leader. Well, Joseph is there with his brothers and his brothers really don't care for him at all because he is a favored son. Dad likes him better than the others. And what's more, Dad makes this beautiful coat that we all know about. And this coat was a visible and visual reminder of just how much their father loved Joseph and really didn't love the other brothers. They didn't like that and they were jealous of him. And the Bible says that they hated him for that coat. Well, to add insult to injury, Joseph is a bit of a tattletale. He brings back bad reports about his brothers. They don't like that either. And they can't get away with anything when he's around. Kind of reminds you of your little brother, doesn't it? Well, to add insult to injury, Joseph comes to his brothers one day and he said, you won't believe these dreams I'm having. I had this dream where you and I were out in the field and we were like sheaves. And... Your sheaves bowed down to my sheep. His brother said, What? You've got to be kidding me. We would never bow down to you. You are the, the least likely in this family to succeed as a leader. You expect us? I mean, Reuben, the firstborn. Judah, the, the strong one. You expect us to bow down to you one day? Well, Joseph didn't have much to say. That was the dream. And that was the way it went. And another dream came along. Sun, moon, and stars bow down to Joseph. And uh, his father gets the message very quickly and says, Come on, your father and your mother also? He says the brothers hated Joseph more. But the father kept the matter. You see, I think Jacob knew there was something to these dreams. Well, a lot of time goes by. And one day, Joseph is sent on another fact-finding mission. Go find out what your brothers are doing. That's what his father said. And so Joseph went off to find his brothers, and he did find them. And as they saw him from afar approaching, they said, this is the big chance. We are going to get rid of this guy once and for all. And someone said, let's kill him. And someone else said, we can't do that. He's our brother. And Judah piped up after a series of events, let's sell him as a slave. Now, don't forget Judah. This is very important to the story. Judah, the impetuous one. Judah just wanted to get this guy out of the picture. Get rid of him. He's a nuisance to us. Dad loves him more than he loves us, and Dad keeps showing favoritism. They didn't like that. Well, in chapter 38 of Genesis, we get a little glimpse into the character of Judah. Judah, unlike the other brothers, goes down and marries a Canaanite. He wasn't supposed to do that. And after a series of events, uh, one of his sons marries a woman, and that son dies. Because he's wicked. Like father, like son. The son was simply mimicking his own father. That son's wife then married another son, and that son died too. And there was one son left. And Judah said, No way. We're not going to give this son to this woman because look what happens every time. So, at that point, Judah decided to sort of make a little plan. He just said, well, I'll stall her off and maybe she'll get interested in someone else. And so off that wife went on her own, but she was very clever. Uh, unfortunately, she wasn't the most moral of persons, but she was clever. She decided to play the part of a prostitute. And one day when Judah was going about his routine activities, she was there by the roadside and she lured him in. And Judah uh, 
committed sex with this woman in a Canaanite shrine. You see, it isn't only prostitution we're talking about. This was a matter of worship, Canaanite, worshiping Canaanite gods as well. I mean, how far will this guy Judah go? Well, through a series of events, Judah is exposed for the wickedness that he has. And uh, even the prostitute looks better than Judah at that point. Well, the, the story just jumps on from that point. But what's interesting now is Joseph, now down in Egypt, is lured into a situation where he could actually commit adultery as well. But what does Joseph do in chapter 38? He refuses Potiphar's wife. I mean, Judah is the one who went looking for the prostitute. Joseph is the one who runs. I mean, he literally runs the other way when he's solicited. And it says that Joseph actually suffered a great deal because of that. He paid a great price. He was thrown into jail. In fact, his own master, Potiphar, I think knew what was going on. He knew that his wife was up to something, but to save face, he threw Joseph in the best of jails. Minimum security. Television, I mean everything. This was posh. You know why? He knew Joseph wasn't guilty. He knew what his wife was like, but he had to save face, and that's why Joseph ended up in jail. All through chapter 39, it tells us that God was with Joseph. Our would-be leader, Joseph, is in the worst imaginable situation for a leader. He's in jail. What kind of spiritual leader could he end up being? After all, a prisoner? A jailbird with a record? I mean, come on. Well, God was with Joseph because Joseph was innocent. But Joseph was rejected by his brothers, and that had to hurt. He was rejected severely. And not only had Joseph been rejected by his brothers, he had been misjudged by his own employer, his master, if you will. And that hurt too. But God was with Joseph. And in the world of leaders, Christian leaders, that is what counts. That is the most important thing. Well, more time goes on. Uh, Joseph is in this jail, this really nice jail. And, and uh, one day, two more prisoners come along. And these prisoners are Pharaoh's uh, personal servants. One is a baker, the other is a cupbearer. Now, you need to know what a cupbearer is. A cupbearer is a guy who tastes the wine to see what happens. I mean, when the cupbearer came in, someone would hand him the cup and he'd drink a little bit and people would start looking at their watches. And, well, he's still standing up. Another five minutes goes by. No, well, cupbearer is still alive. Must be the wine's okay. We'll give it to the king. And uh, that was what a cupbearer did. doesn't sound like a, a boring occupation. But it sounds like a dangerous one. But a cupbearer would often become a confidant to a king or to a pharaoh. And that's what this guy did. He was a, a right hand, so to speak. And pharaoh had a falling out with his cupbearer, this baker. We really don't know what happened to them. But they ended up in the same jail as Joseph. And one night they had dreams. And they were all worried about their dreams. And Joseph, who had been put in charge of the prison at that point, because he was a model prisoner. See, Joseph always worked hard. Joseph didn't fall into the trap of feeling sorry for himself. He just bounced back and worked hard in the most difficult of situations. It's a characteristic of a leader. Well, Joseph saw these, these prisoners and he saw that they weren't happy and Joseph wasn't going to leave that alone. 
He wanted his prisoners to be happy. So Joseph said, what's wrong, guys? And they said, well, we had these dreams and we just don't know what to do with them. And Joseph interpreted their dreams. And the dreams came true. The baker was hanged and the cupbearer was restored to his position. And as the cupbearer slammed the door behind him on his way out of the jail, Joseph said, now remember me, just remember me when you get back in Pharaoh's presence. The cupbearer forgot. And years go by and Joseph is still in jail. What will happen to our would-be leader? He's been rejected by his brothers. He's been misjudged by his master. And now he's even forgotten by the prisoner that he helped. I mean, Joseph is in a bad way. This guy is the least likely to succeed in his world. The very least likely. Well, now God takes action. One day, a light bulb goes off in the mind of the cupbearer. Because Pharaoh has a dream himself. And Pharaoh is calling in all the magicians and all the wise men. He said, I got this dream. I, 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 don't, I just can't figure it out. And he said, you know, we don't, we don't know what this dream is about. And what they're thinking is, if we guess about this dream and we miss it, we're history. So they said, we don't know. And then the light bulb goes on in the mind of the cupbearer. He says to the Pharaoh, you know, there was a day when, when I was in your prison and there's a guy there who interprets dreams. He's a Hebrew. I, you know, I've forgotten his name, but, but he's back there. I think he's still there. And they called Joseph from prison and they made him take a shower and clean up because he was a mess. And they brought him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, I heard you interpret dreams. And Joseph, who is not bitter with God, says, only God interprets dreams. Tell me your dream, Pharaoh. And so he told Joseph the dream. And Joseph said, it's simple. It's a simple dream. There are two dreams because God is the one who gave you the dream. And secondly, he is going to act immediately. And you must take action also. He said, Pharaoh, it's like this. There's going to be a period of time where there's going to be a great, great plenty in the land. You need to store up goods during that time because that will be followed by a period of time when people will be starving to death in the whole world around Egypt. But you can prepare for that time. Pharaoh's scratching his head and he thought, I can prepare. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. He said, I need a guy who can do this for me. I need a steward. Joseph, you're the man. Joseph, you have been faithful in interpreting these dreams. You are the man for the occasion. Do you see what's happening here? The guy who was least likely to succeed, the guy who was rejected by his brothers, was now remembered by an official. He was even bragged upon by the cupbearer who had forgotten him. Things are getting better. And whereas Joseph had been misjudged by Potiphar, he was restored, even honored, given a privileged position by Pharaoh. God is taking action. You see, leadership belongs to God. God hands out the leadership roles in this world for Christians. Well, it's not over yet. Through a series of events, Joseph becomes the vice regent of all Egypt. You mean the guy who was in jail a few years earlier? Yeah, that's the guy. The guy least likely to succeed. And you have to know what that means. In the world of Egypt, the Pharaoh was a god. He wasn't like a god. He was God. He was it. And they didn't need a Bible in Egypt. 
because everybody would literally hang on the word of Pharaoh. And Joseph is now the second guy in command. How high has God exalted his servant Joseph? My, he's gone from nothing to the very pinnacle of ancient Near Eastern society because Egypt had it all. And Joseph was the second in command. You know, Pharaoh puts beautiful clothing on Joseph and gives him a gold chain and gives him his signet ring. Joseph could sign any check with that signet ring. Joseph could do anything he wanted to with that signet ring. To have the signet ring of Pharaoh was to have the authority of Pharaoh. My, Joseph had become a powerful man. Incredible in just a short amount of time. Well, more time goes by and things are getting pretty sparse up in Israel. And they are starting to starve. Before long, Jacob decides he needs to take action. So he sends his sons down to Egypt. And they come before Pharaoh. No, they come before Joseph. And they bow down to him. And Joseph recognized them. And in those very, very split-second moments, Joseph remembered the dreams. Here they are. I had the dream. The dream said that they would bow down to me. And here they are bowing down to me now. God was fulfilling those dreams that he had given Joseph. Now, the brothers didn't recognize him. So Joseph decides it's time to teach them a little bit of a lesson. So through a, a series of events that we won't talk about today because we want to get to the end and see the upshot of all this. Through a series of events, Joseph sends them back to their father scared stiff. They are petrified of Joseph. Joseph has their lives, in a sense, in his hands. And they tell their father, Jacob, this. And uh, Jacob says, uh, basically, you blew it. <laughs> Why did you spill the whole story about our family and your brother and all this? And he said, how do we know who he was? I mean, how does this guy get his information? Is what they were saying. This guy who was down in Egypt calling all the shots now. Well, time goes by and, and Jacob isn't wanting to send his sons back down to Egypt before the son that he thinks is dead. And uh, more time goes by. And people are getting hungry. And people are starting to starve again. And finally, Jacob agrees, we're all going to die unless we go down and get food. So he sends the brothers back down to Egypt again. And the brothers come before Joseph in a series of events. And Joseph reveals himself to them. And it's so fascinating what he says. We're in chapter 45 now. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. I mean, he could have snuffed out their lives like that, but he didn't. What did he do? Joseph forgave them. And his brothers are all upset. They figure this guy's going to have our head rolling in just a minute here. Joseph says to him in chapter 45 and verse 5, And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you preserve life. Did you catch the shift? The brothers are thinking, we are to blame for all this. We have to own the responsibility for treating our brother badly. And he's going to kill us? And our brother is telling us that God has sent us here. God was in control of everything. Verse 6, 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. And the brothers are thinking, no way. We sold you as a slave. God sent me here, Joseph said. Well, Joseph says, it's okay, guys. I'm going to take care of you. Go back and get the families. And he gave them all kinds of gifts. He gave them transportation to go back and bring their stuff down to Egypt, including their father. And that is exactly what happens. Before long, the whole family is united in Egypt. And Joseph is with his family again. I mean, who would have guessed that he would get his family back? And Joseph is in charge of everything. In fact, Joseph asks Pharaoh, you know, my brothers are pretty sharp. Can I give them some responsibilities too? Pharaoh says, do whatever you want to do. I trust you. Uh, I'm putting it all in your hands. So before long, Joseph's family is running the show in Egypt. They are keeping people alive. They are making money for Pharaoh. And they are building up the empire. Who would have guessed? And you know, there is Joseph on top of the world. I mean, holding the scepter of the great Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And one day it's time for dad, Jacob, to die. And I'm sure all the brothers were saying, Hey, Joseph is the man. Joseph is the leader. God was with Joseph. God caused Joseph to rise to the top in Egyptian society. That's not what happened. Turn to chapter 49. Remember, Joseph had been rejected by his brothers. Joseph had been misjudged by a ruler. Joseph had been forgotten by the cupbearer. And all of that in sequence and reverse order had been reversed. Joseph was then remembered, even bragged upon by the cupbearer. He was restored, even honored by, by the Pharaoh himself. I mean, who cares about Potiphar? And then finally, he'd been accepted, even respected by the brothers who had rejected. God had given it all back to Joseph. Everything he lost, he had gotten back fourfold. And he was now head honcho in Egypt. And it comes time for, for Dad to pass off the scene. And he's going to pass the baton. And these brothers know that they are going to become a great nation one day. And that one of the tribes will be leader supreme in Israel. And everyone says, my vote is for Joseph. But that's not what Jacob says. In verse 3 of chapter 49, he tells Reuben, Reuben, you're my firstborn. You are the likely one according to tradition. My might in the beginning and my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence, firstborn. Everyone said, good grief. Not Reuben, the firstborn? Well, who then? It has to be Joseph. Well, let's look at Simeon, the next one in line. Simeon and Levi are our brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Wow! 
If that's what happened to Reuben and Simeon, just think what is going to happen to Judah. Remember who Judah was? Chapter 38. Judah, the guy who said, let's sell our brother into slavery. And everyone knew it. Everyone in the family. Judah, you mean the, the guy who had an incestuous relationship with his son's wife? That's the guy. You mean the one who married a Canaanite when it was against Israelite religion? That's the guy. You mean the one who withheld his son from marriage when he was breaking the law, the custom to do so? Yep. Surely not the one who solicited, solicited a prostitute? Yeah, Judah. The one who was not the firstborn, in fact, the fourthborn, yeah. Surely not the one born to the wife Jacob loved the least. And to us that seems like nothing, but to them that was everything. What does Jacob have to say about Judah? Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Well, I thought that was Joseph. It was for a time and for a purpose. But things are going to change. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion who dares rouse him up, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. King forever. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are, and we need to change some words here. Uh, look at your marginal note. His eyes are dull from wine. The marginal note is better. Darker than wine. It's good. It's all positive for Judah. Every last prophecy. And then finally, his teeth are white from milk. It should be whiter than milk. That is, Judah is the man. Judah is the one who will be king over all Israel one day. Judah, the guy who it seems like had missed it at every turn. Every turn. Why? Why Judah? I mean, that's a fair question to ask. Joseph was the one who was chief over the world. I mean, he was the leader supreme. In fact, in a certain sense, he'd earned it. He'd paid his dues. He'd suffered greatly for the position that he held in Egypt. Judah will be king in Israel? That's right. Judah will be king in Israel. And his tribe will reign supreme forever. In fact, the ultimate compliment, the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. Well, what about Joseph then? I mean, if Judah gets all that, what must Joseph get? Look at verse 22 of chapter 49. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. Talking about his brothers. And shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you. And by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound, the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph 
and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his, among his brothers. But no royal crown. No tribal crown. In fact, Joseph's sons will become relatively significant among the tribes of Israel. And Judah's will reign supreme. Joseph seemed like an unlikely to succeed at one point as a leader. He was rejected, he was misjudged, and imprisoned, he was forgotten. But then he was remembered, and God restored him in every way. He was remembered, bragged upon by cupbearer, restored, even honored by a great ruler, accepted, even respected by his brothers. Joseph had all the strikes against him at the beginning, and at the worst point in time, God rose him up and placed him on high. But it was only for a time. And then along comes Judah. So undeserving in our eyes. But he becomes the ruler supreme. You know, Judah did make a turnaround. He did make a turnaround at one point, And I think he even regretted having done what he did to Joseph. But look at what he had done in his past. What's the point? I mean, where does all this leave us? In the world of leadership, you say, well, you know, maybe God wants me to be a leader someday. What am I supposed to do based on what we've seen here? Well, you're supposed to be faithful and then wait and see what happens. Joseph was faithful in every way and God exalted him. You say, Judah was not faithful. Well, he became faithful in the end. In the final hour, the 11th hour, Judah was the man. And he replaced Joseph. You see, God will do whatever He will in this world. And you may, not have, you may not always approve of the rulers that God has selected. I don't. I find criticism with them. Uh, I look at them and say to myself at times, golly, as inept as I am, I could do a better job. But we have to recognize, God raises up the rulers of this world. And their responsibility is to be faithful in every way. Do you want to serve God? Do you want to become a leader? A leader of leaders or perhaps a leader of few? It really doesn't matter. The bottom line is God requires faithfulness from you. Forget about the books on how to be a leader. I mean, it's collecting dust on my shelf. Forget about dress for success. Now, dress wisely. Um, don't try to insult people like I tried to do today, basically. Um, I did that as a symbolic gesture to say that clothes don't make the person, the man or the woman. Faithfulness to God is where it's at in leadership. Do you want to be a leader? Be found faithful. If you do, God will use you as a leader. God raises up leaders and God replaces them. It's for us to be faithful. Leaders are made in heaven. Let's pray. Father, in a world that's filled with chaos, in a world that seems to lack leadership in, in every sector, we recognize that You are still reigning supreme. You are sovereign. and You are allowing these things to happen. Father, help us to know what our place is in this world around us. Help us to be able to, to look at a need and meet that need and not become part of the problem. Help us to be problem solvers in a world of problems.
And Father, when we look around and we see people achieving leadership in all of the wrong ways, help us to remind ourselves that there is a way which is right. And we don't need to settle for second best in attaining leadership in this world. Father, we love you. We want to serve you faithfully. We thank you for the leaders that this this institution has sent out thus far. We pray for them today. We pray for Zhao as, as he helps his people in Nairobi, the hospital there, and keeps a busy breakneck schedule. We pray that you give him the, the strength to be the wise leader, the one with the scalpel, but the one with the wise word as well. Pray for Cornell as he's even now getting ready to land in Bucharest. Pray that you would prepare him for the great task that he has before him to to translate, to interact with pastors. We pray that this would be an opportunity for him to meet pastors and to fit back into Romanian society, which is his dream. And Father, as the the slides uh, so wonderfully depicted at the beginning of the chapel today, we pray for those people in Ukraine. Pray for the, the whites. We think of Greg now as he's gearing up and getting ready to teach a course in, in Bible study methods. Pray that you would give him the ability to do so. Pray that we, you would give him the ability to lead in that city uh, as he seeks to help those people coming in now who will uh, need to learn Russian, who will need to adjust to a different culture, many of them in sickness. Pray that you would give them strength. Pray for Greg and Fushan. Pray for Bruce and Amy. Pray for Bruce as he prepares uh, a course in English as a second language, never having done this before. Pray that you would give him wisdom. Pray that you would help him to, to gain a second sense of language, which usually only comes through teaching years. Pray that you would put him ahead of his time. Give him the ability to do that so that the Ukrainian pastors might be able to use the English tools that they've been given, the English books that are on their shelves that they can't even use now, they can't even read. Pray for Amy. She continues to to uh, help people in their adjustment as well. We pray for the Kinsels and the Edwards as they're just now arriving and setting up housekeeping there. We pray that their transition would be a smooth one. Pray that you would help them to overcome many obstacles with their children there. The sickness that will come, probably, uh, as is usually the case. Pray that you would uh, help them to know how to act. We pray that uh, they might have the, the medicine and the... Uh, the technology there to help them to survive so that they might be faithful vessels for your honor and your glory and your service in that society. We pray that all of them might be able to work together and to be a powerful force for the gospel there. Father, now I pray for my brothers and sisters before me in training in many respects, but already leaders to those around them. Father, you continually tell us in your word that we are leaders because we do impact those around us with our examples. Pray that you would help them to be stunning and stellar examples in a society that is so grim, in a society that says, be a leader, manipulate people, twist arms, bribe, do whatever it takes. Pray that you would help these folks to be faithful, even now in their preparation. Pray that they might be leaders to one another and in the churches uh, in which they are a part. Pray that the habits established here and now, 
the study habits, the moral habits, all of these areas would be leadership skills, honed, polished, be ready for use when they leave this institution and go out into the world to be leaders for you. Father, help us to look to your models of leadership. Help us to be faithful. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, would you stand and you are dismissed.